thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. In transformations in all of church history, the conversion and life transformation of Saul, who will eventually become the great apostle Paul. Bible scholars generally agree that besides the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the conversion of Saul and the transformation and how God uses him uh, is one of the greatest things uh, that we see in all of church history. Because what God does through Saul, who becomes Paul, is arguably the greatest work that God does through uh, any individual through church history. And as we look at the conversion of Saul this morning, I want us to to note four things about Saul's uh, conversion experience. Uh, First, we're going to see Saul persecuting Jesus. Second, Saul pursued by Jesus. Third, Saul surrendered to Jesus. And then fourth, Saul transformed to become like Jesus. And as we look at these four things surrounding Saul's conversion experience, I want you to realize that everybody who comes to a belief in Jesus Christ, this process is something that we all go through. We start being those who are persecuting the Lord, then he pursues us, we ultimately surrender to him, and he transforms us to become like him. And so as we see this, I think there's a lot that we can be encouraged by this morning. Well, let's start with Saul persecuting Jesus, starting in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem." Well, so far, we've seen in Acts that Saul was the one who was overseen, in charge of the first martyr, Stephen's death. People were laying their garments in front of him. He was the one in charge of that. And then we saw that he started from that point wreaking havoc in the church. He was going into people's homes, taking men and women, imprisoning them. He was doing everything he could to destroy Christianity and to kill Christians. Well, now Luke tells us that Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's not content with just Christians in prison. He wants it completely destroyed and those who believe in Christianity completely destroyed. And we see the lengths that Saul is willing to go to destroy Christianity here in these first couple verses. Now, when Saul started to make havoc on the church, We noted that the Jerusalem believers fled. They they were so fearful for their lives that they went out, Judea, Samaria. We noted that last week of what's going on. Uh, And notice what Saul does here in verse 2. We're told, Saul went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul, he goes to the high priest and he says, I want letters, I want authority to go all the way up north of Jerusalem to Damascus, and I want to be able to get anybody who is of Christianity, anybody who is believing in Jesus, I want to grab them and I want to bring them back here to Jerusalem, we're going to imprison them or we're going to kill them, and he is given that opportunity, he is given that authority by the high priest. Now, 
If you note here from our map, Jerusalem is in the region of Judea. North of Jerusalem, you have the region of Samaria. North of Samaria, you have the region of Galilee, where Jesus did uh, a huge amount of his ministry. And all the way at the very top of Israel, you see Damascus. And so Saul is traveling all the way up to Damascus. His heart probably is, I'm going to start at the north and work my way south. And during that time, I'm going to get as many Christians as possible and bring them back to Jerusalem to imprison them or to kill them. In the book of Galatians, Paul speaks of his life before he uh, became a Christian, his life when he persecuted the church, and he clearly reveals what he was doing, why he was doing it. Notice what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For you heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. Saul makes it very clear. My purpose when it came to persecuting the church was to destroy it. That was my heart. That was my desire. I wanted to destroy Christianity, destroy Christians. Now, I want you to note a few things about Saul. He was a man full of hate, a man full of hate specifically at Christians and those who believed in Jesus. He was a man willing to do anything to destroy this movement, including imprison or kill those that believed in Jesus. He was a man zealous for his religious beliefs. And I think it's interesting that we see this description that Saul gives of himself there in Galatians, because think about that for a moment, because there are several men in history who are, uh, we could describe them in a similar way as uh, Saul describes his life before Christ, men who were full of hate against a group of people for their religious beliefs, men who were willing to do anything to destroy those people and kill, uh, including killing them, and men who were zealous for their own religious beliefs. Two probably of the most famous and heinous individuals that come to mind of that are Osama bin Laden and Adolf Hitler. Now when you think of Osama bin Laden and Adolf Hitler, you think of horrible men who destroyed innocent people in the name of their religion. Well, that's what Saul was like. I think oftentimes we don't see how horrible he was before he became a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, Hitler sent SS officers into Jewish homes, arrested them, put them in concentration camps to be killed. Saul didn't even use SS officers. He went into people's homes himself and pulled them out and imprisoned them and saw them killed. I mean, this was a man who wanted to destroy Christians, just like Hitler wanted to destroy Jews. And Osama bin Laden wanted to destroy uh, basically anyone who didn't believe in his religious beliefs. And so Saul is a horrible man who did horrible things to innocent people in the name of his religion. And I want to point that out because I think it's so important to understand how horrible Saul was, how horrible his sin is, because it reveals something very important to us about the God that we worship and serve. It shows us that God's love is willing to forgive and reach even the most wicked and horrible and sinful people. No matter how horrible and sinful someone has been, God can still forgive them for what they've done. There is no sin too great for God to forgive and no person too sinful that God cannot forgive. 1 John 1.9 gives us a wonderful promise. It says this, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter how great someone's sin is, as you look at Saul, who was a murderer of Christians, no matter what, if we will come to Jesus Christ, if we will say, you know what, we want forgiveness of our sins, we are promised that he will forgive us, he will cleanse us, and he will 
save us. Now, I want you to notice what the early church was called, because today we mainly refer to the church as Christians. But back when the church first started, Christianity was not the term that was used for. It was called the way. Notice that it says, if Saul found any who were of the way, that's how they describe people who follow Jesus. And I find that to be a fitting description, because you remember Jesus himself said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, these believers were followers of the way, followers of Jesus Christ, and that's how they were described. Those are the ones who were of the way. They recognized there's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ, and they followed him, and they wanted to share others about him, this one way to heaven, this one way to God through Jesus Christ. We see this term used five times in Acts to describe the early church as the way. So Saul, he's a man about as far away from Jesus as you can be. His whole passion is to destroy those who believe in Jesus. And at a point in time when Saul hated Jesus, wanted to destroy Jesus and those who believed in him, notice what Jesus does for Saul in verses 3 through 6. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. So Saul, he's on his journey to Damascus, and remember his purpose in going there is to find Christians and grab them and bring them back to Jerusalem to imprison, to kill. So he's starting this process of destroying those who believe in Jesus. And as he's on this journey to Damascus, notice what transpires. We're told suddenly a light from heaven was shining around Saul, and it was so powerful that Saul falls to the ground, and he hears this voice, an audible voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Here Saul is confronted with the true nature of his sin, and I want you to note this because it's the first thing I want you to note about Saul's conversion experience. Saul is ultimately persecuting Jesus, not just people. You know, Paul, he probably thought, hey, you know, I'm just killing Christians, imprisoning Christians, those who follow Jesus. But Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I want us to, to note that very important reality here that Saul comes to recognize. Though he was, uh, he really thought he probably was serving God as he attacked Christians. He thought that Jesus and Christianity were a threat to Judaism and he wanted to destroy those things. But he discovered that he's not fighting for God. Instead, he's a fighting against God. I think something we need to understand is that ultimately for all of us, our sin is first and foremost to God. You know, we might be sinning against individuals, but also that sin is to God. We're doing it towards him. All of us are guilty of sinning against God. So we all start our conversion experience as Saul did, as sinners against God. And the first thing I want you to note about Saul's conversion experience is that Saul was persecuting Jesus. And here in verses 3 through 6, we see the second thing about Saul's conversion experience, the thing that should bring us great encouragement, and that is Saul is pursued by Jesus. 
Notice this. Saul is, is pursuing Christians in order to destroy them, in order to kill them, in order to imprison them. And at that moment when he is trying to destroy those who believe in Jesus, Jesus himself is pursuing Saul and reaching out to Saul and revealing himself to Saul. Jesus pursues Saul and meets him there on the road to Damascus. I think something important to understand about Jesus is that he pursues and receives sinful people. This is something as we went through the Gospel of Luke, we saw over and over again. Jesus goes out of his way to pursue and to receive people who were sinners. That was one of the big complaints the religious leaders had against Jesus. You remember in Luke chapter 15, verse 2, here's one of those instances where they're complaining. And it says, And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man, speaking about Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Over and over in the Gospels, they're like, you know, why do you spend time with these sinful people? Why are you engaging these sinful people? Why are you pursuing these sinful people? You see, the religious leaders saw people as these horrible sinners that they wanted nothing to do with, that they wouldn't go near. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus recognized they're in need of me. I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to reach them. I'm going to reveal myself to them. That's the wonderful thing about Christ. He pursues and receives sinful people like you and me. You know, if you have a concept of God that he wants nothing to do with sinful people, that, you know, sinful people he wants to steer clear away from, then then you've missed the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. The fact that Jesus pursues and receives Saul is a proof of that. C.S. Lewis, the great author and theologian, said this about the night that he got saved. I was the most reluctant convert in all of England. I heard the feet of the one who pursued me. And I had nowhere else to run. And there in the dorm room of my university, I fell on my knees and surrendered to him there. Notice it was Jesus pursuing C.S. Lewis. And if you know anything about C.S. Lewis' life before he became a follower of Jesus, he was someone who was very outspoken against Christianity, wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And yet that man, Jesus pursues and ultimately reveals himself to C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis accepts him and gets saved. Jesus was pursuing me. He was pursuing you as you lived your sinful life. God loves you so much that he's willing to pursue you even when you're running away from him. He's willing to pursue you even when you want nothing to do with him. He's willing to pursue you when you're living a life completely contrary to him. He's willing to pursue you because he loves you. Jesus pursued Saul. He pursues me. He pursues you because of his great love. But notice that Jesus doesn't just pursue Saul which is a great starting point, but he also reveals himself to Saul. He actually audibly speaks to Saul, but he doesn't just reveal himself to Saul. He also reveals to Saul the sin in Saul's life. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, we should be greatly encouraged by this because we don't deserve the fact that Jesus reveals himself to us. We don't deserve the fact that Jesus reveals to us the thing that keeps us from him, which is our sin. He shows us himself. He shows us our sin so that we can confess it, so that we can deal with it, so that we can ask for forgiveness of it. He does it because he wants to change us. He wants to save us. He does it because he loves us. Now, when Jesus reveals himself to us, he reveals our sin to us. He doesn't force us to accept him. 
He doesn't force us to ask for forgiveness. He doesn't force himself on us in any way, shape, or form. He reveals himself to us. He reveals our sin to us. And then he gives us that opportunity to make a choice. What are we going to do with that information? What are we going to do now that we know that Jesus is real? What are we going to do now that we know that we are sinful and we need a Savior? We have a choice that we have to make. We have to respond to that. Saul had a choice. How is he going to respond to Jesus? How is he going to respond to Jesus revealing himself to him? How is he going to respond to the reality of his sin? Well, we're going to see right here, Saul asked two great questions of Jesus. Two great questions that everyone should ask as they encounter Jesus and as they are revealed their sin. The first question that Saul asks is, who are you, Lord? And the second question is, Lord, what do you want me to do? Most everyone has questions about, you know, or for God. I was find it interesting. A few years ago, they did a survey uh, among people, and you know, they said, "What are the top three questions if you could speak with the Lord that you would ask Him?" And, and here's the the number, the five uh, responses: Will there ever be lasting world peace? How can I be a better person? What does the future hold for my family and me? Will there ever be a cure for all diseases? And why is there suffering in the world? Now, I find it interesting that these were the top five questions for God because all of these are answered very clearly in the Bible. So you could actually get the answer. You don't need to speak to him personally. He's already revealed that. And these aren't the most significant questions to ask. These aren't the most important questions to ask. Actually, what Saul asks are much more important. The first question that Saul asks is, Who are you, Lord? When Jesus reveals himself to us, this is a very important question to ask. Before you accept someone... You want to know who they are. I'm sure all of us, you know, we we have our door locked and someone knocks on it. We don't expect them. We don't know who they are. What's the question we ask? Who is it? We want to know who's at our door before we open it up. We want to know who's there. In the same way, when Jesus reveals himself to us, this is a very important question. Who are you? And that is what Saul starts with. Well, notice that Jesus says something in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus stands at the door of each person's heart and he's knocking. And he says, If you will open it up, if you will receive me into your life, I will come in. I will come into your life. When you hear Jesus knocking on the door of your heart to great responses, who is it? Who are you? And when you hear Jesus telling you who it is, that's your opportunity to respond by receiving him, by receiving his free gift of salvation, by receiving him into your life. You have that choice of whether you're going to open that door or whether you're going to keep it closed. All of us have experienced Jesus knocking on the door of our hearts, and many of us have made that choice to accept him and to receive him into our life. If you haven't opened the door for Jesus, understand he's not going to force it open. He's not going to kick the door down. He's just going to keep knocking. He's going to wait for you to willingly accept him, wait for you to choose to allow him into your life and forgive you of your sins. Who are you, Lord? You know, that's a great question to ask when you're about to get saved right before you accept Christ. But you know what? It's also a great question to continually ask in our walk with Jesus. Who are you, Lord? You know, that should be something that we want to grow in a deeper understanding of. Not just, you know, who are you in the sense of you're my Savior, but I want to know more. I want to know more about Jesus. Who are you? 
You know, I think it's interesting that Paul starts with this question in his salvation and conversion experience, but it's something that for the rest of his life, he continues to ponder and find the answer to this great question, who are you, Lord? Philippians 3.10 tells us this, Paul is you know, speaking, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Saul, as he's converted and and his life starts to grow, he wants to continue to know, who are you, Lord? But notice he doesn't just want to know the power. All of us want to know the power of God. All of us want to experience the power of God. But, But he goes on to another step. He says, I don't even just want to know that. I also want to know the fellowship of your sufferings. I'm willing to suffer like you did so I can grow in an understanding of you more, so I can learn more about you. Saul wanted to understand and know and grow in his understanding of who Jesus is. You know, as Christians, we should be spending the rest of our life wanting to know more completely that answer, wanting to dig in and grow in that. Well, Jesus answers Saul's question, who are you, Lord? He says in verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Once again, Jesus reveals himself to Saul, and he reveals to Saul that Saul is sinning against him. Now, the next thing that Jesus says shows another important thing about Jesus. Notice he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is a long stick with a metal point. It was used to get oxen to go the way that you want. Oxen are big, dumb animals, uh, and to get them to go in the direction you want, you would poke them in the legs uh, with this stick, and it would cause them to start walking uh, the way that you wanted them to walk. But sometimes they didn't want to, and so they would just kick against that, and that would kick would go right into that metal point, and it would hurt them. And if they were really stubborn, they'd just keep kicking and not doing what you say. But eventually, as you keep prodding them, uh, they would do what you ask them to do. With this analogy, Jesus is describing Saul as this ox, and Jesus is the farmer with the goad. Saul is like that stubborn ox. He's not going the way that Jesus wants, and so Jesus is goading Saul in the right direction. And as he's goading Saul, it causes Saul pain. But instead of submitting to Jesus, Saul is kicking against the goad. He's doing exactly what he shouldn't be doing, and it's causing him even more pain. You see, Jesus could use this analogy with all of us because all of us at some point in time in our life have acted like dumb oxen doing what we want, going against what God wants, and God loves us enough that he starts prodding us in the right direction. And if we're not willing to accept that direction and follow that direction, we start kicking against what God is doing, and it causes us pain, just like it did with Saul. When Jesus says it's hard for you to kick against the goad. I think it shows great love from Jesus to Saul. Notice that Jesus is the one being persecuted. Jesus is the one that Saul is doing things against, but yet Jesus' concern is for Saul. Saul, it's hard for you. It's painful for you to kick and to resist what I'm doing in your life. Jesus had such a tender heart and concern for Saul, and he has such a tender heart and concern for us, even when our own sin brings these consequences to our life. You know, when we suffer the consequences of our sin, Jesus isn't sitting in the heaven saying, well, you got what you deserve, you know, just deal with it. That's not the heart of God. It breaks his heart even when we're suffering because of our own sinful behavior, because of disobedience to him. He doesn't want to see his children suffering. Just like as parents, you know, even if your kids are sinning and it's their own fault, you don't want to see them suffering. You don't want to see them in pain. And Jesus has that same heart for us. Saul's first question is, who are you, Lord? And his second question is in verse 6. 
So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? First, we noted in Saul's conversion experience that Saul was persecuting Jesus. The second thing we noted is that Saul was pursued by Jesus. The third thing I want you to note is now Saul is surrendered to Jesus. Jesus pursues Saul. And Saul responds by surrendering to Jesus. And he shows his surrender in his second question, what do you want me to do? That's a question of surrender. What do you want me to do, Jesus? The second question is even more important than the first. This is the response God seeks from all of us when he reveals himself to us, when he reveals our sin to us. What do you want me to do? What is the proper way to respond to who you are, to respond to the sin in my life? If you remember in Acts chapter 2, as Peter preached the gospel, the crowd responded, Peter, what shall we do? They asked the same great question, and Peter tells them, you need to repent of your sin. You need to get right with God. That's the first thing that all of us should do. That's the first answer to that question. When we're coming to God for the first time, we say, what shall we do? You need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to ask God to save you of your sin. But just like with the other question, this shouldn't just be something that we do in our salvation and conversion experience. This should be a question that we continually ask through our Christian life. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do today, next week, next month, next year? You know, that should be a focus and a heart that we have to continually seek to ask God this very important question. What do you want me to do? And notice the emphasis should be on, what do you want me to do? So often as Christians, it's like, oh, what do you want others to do? Lord, what should they be doing for you? And look, they're not really doing it very well. And you know, Sometimes we get so focused on everyone else and forget the most important person. Because when you stand before God in heaven, you're not responsible for everyone else's decisions. You're responsible for your own. And so he's going to ask you, what did you do? Well, well, I can tell you this person didn't do it and that person. I didn't ask you that. What did you do? We're responsible for us. And so we should be saying, Lord, what do you want me to be doing with my life to bring glory and honor to you? Saul asked Jesus, what do you want me to do? And notice how Jesus responds in verse 6. Then he said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I like this answer and I don't like this answer from Jesus because notice he just tells Saul, I'm just going to give you the next step. The next thing that I want you to do, and I'm sure Saul's thinking, you know, I would really like a lot more steps, maybe about 25 down the line. You know, what is it you want me to do? Kind of give me a bigger picture. Help me understand what's coming, what the future holds. And all he says is, I just want you to go into the city and I will tell you what you must do. You know, this is often the way that God directs our lives. He directs our lives one step at a time instead of giving it all to us at once, laying it all out at once, giving us the whole plan at once. And you know, if you're anything like me, that can be frustrating because we want the big picture. We want to know more. We want to know how things are going to happen. We want to know how the future is going to unfold. And God just says, oh, just take this next step. Okay, and then what's going to happen? Oh, don't worry about that. Just take the next step. But Lord, what's after that step? And what's after that step? And what's after that step? I've shared with you before, even in coming here, that was something that Jenny and I dealt with of like, all right, Lord, we feel called to come and plant a church here in Pasadena, but we need to know the next step. You know, where am I going to get a job? How are you going to bring together a ministry team? How are things going to come together with the church? You know, you reveal all those things and we're ready to go. Nope, just take this first step. And we had to just take the first step, not knowing what the next steps were going to be. And oftentimes that's what God is wanting. Just be obedient and trust me. And really, that's what it comes down to. Are we willing to 
trust him. And, and I think that's one of the reasons God chooses to say, you know what, I'm not going to share 10 steps or 20 steps or 30 steps down the line. I'm just going to share the next one. Because he wants us to stay in that continual place of trust in him. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Notice, we want the direction. God, direct our paths. And he said, just trust me. I'll reveal the next step, and you just follow, and you trust. Trust me with all your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. Notice those are the two big issues that come to hinder us from doing what God says. We lean on our own understanding, and we don't trust the Lord with everything. And he's saying, you know, just trust me with it all. Don't lean on your own understanding, and I will direct you. And I think that's so often why he just says, here's just one step. Not 10, not 15, because I just want you to trust me, and we're going to stay in that trust relationship, and I'm going to take care of you, and you just need to believe that I'll take care of you. So Jesus says, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And now we're going to see the other guys who are with Saul, because Saul's not traveling alone. He's got his whole entourage ready to imprison and and destroy Christians. And notice how they respond to what's transpiring as well, verses 7 through 9. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So the men are journeying with Saul. Remember, Saul sees this bright light. It knocks him to the ground. He hears this voice. These men don't see anything. They just hear the voice, and they're tripping out like, you know, what's going on? We're hearing an audible voice as well. And so they're freaking out because of what's transpiring, but they're not really sure what's happening. Saul's now blind on the ground, and they lead him into Damascus, and he's there for three days. Blind, he's not eating, he's not drinking, and it's interesting. He came to this city intending to confront and capture followers of Jesus, but instead he was confronted by Jesus so that Jesus could reveal his sin and capture his heart. Well, let's see what happens next, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and acquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name for poor Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So here's a disciple. He's in Damascus. His name is Ananias. And the Lord speaks to him in a vision. Says, arise. Go to a specific place, the street called Straight. And I want you to inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus because he's praying. And you know what? As he's been praying, I'd given him a vision. He has a vision of a man named Ananias, which is you, who's going to come lay hands on him so that he can receive sight. He's expecting you. I've already revealed that you're coming. But notice the response here that uh, Ananias has to the fact that God wants him to do this. Ananias responds, Lord, I've heard from many about how this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. 
Ananias isn't so sure this is a good idea. Hey, I know about this guy. Hey, he's been down in Jerusalem imprisoning and killing people, and the only reason he's up here in Damascus is because he's been given authority to do that to us who are up here. Do you really think this is a good idea to go near this guy, to go do anything for this guy? Ananias' response to the Lord, he basically tells him, hey, (laughs) do you think this is wise? Now, his objections are are logical and well-founded, but his objections presume that God needed his opinion, that God needed his counsel. And it also missed the heart of God to reach even the most wicked people like Saul. You know, when God tells us to do something, he doesn't need our instruction. He doesn't need our counsel. He just needs our obedience. He knows what's going on much better than we do. We don't need to say, God, wait a second. Maybe you don't understand the situation quite well. No, he understands it. We're the ones who don't get it. We just need to be obedient, not try to inform him of things that we think he needs to know. Because oftentimes God tells us to do things that we don't fully understand, we don't fully agree with, and instead of just obeying, we try to convince him he's wrong so that we don't have to do what he's told us to do instead of trusting him and being obedient to what he's told us to do. Lord, Do you know the kind of person you're telling me to reach out to? Lord, do you know what kind of sin they're involved in? Lord, do you know what they've done to other people who believe in you? I mean, that's ultimately what Ananias was saying. That's what we often say to God as well. Yes, he knows. He knows better than we do, and he loves them, and he died for them. And when he says reach them, it's because he wants to reach them. He doesn't want us to argue with him or try to convince him he's wrong. He just wants us to obey him and do what he tells us to do. But God's also gracious. He understands Ananias' concern. They're not, you know, foolish concerns or silly concerns. And so he helps Ananias understand why he should do this. And he answers Ananias. He says, go. For Saul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Once again, God says to Ananias, go. Be obedient to me. But here's the reason why. I have a plan for Saul. He's a chosen vessel of mine. I've chosen him. I've called him. I have a specific purpose for his life. I'm sure Saul didn't think there was a purpose. I'm sure Ananias definitely didn't think there was a purpose for Saul's life. But God has a purpose for everyone's life. He has something that he wants to do in everyone's life. And he wants to reveal here to Ananias, here, go. I have a special calling. This man's going to go before Gentiles. He's going to go before kings. He's going to go before people of Israel. And he's also going to suffer greatly for my name's sake. I think this is another amazing thing about God. Regardless of how wicked your past is, God can still change you and usually great you greatly in the future. I think oftentimes we buy into the lie of the enemy of, oh, look at your sinful past. God can never do anything in your life. I grew up in a church like that where I was told that, and my brother was told that, and other were told that. of like, oh, you know, because of the sin that you've committed now, God will never be able to use you in the future. When you start studying people in the Bible... And that's just not the case. Everyone that God uses has sinful pasts, has problems, has issues. And, and this is so wonderful. You look at a guy like Saul who was a murderer of Christians, and then you look at what God was able to do in and through his life. And it's amazing what God can do to change someone. He can forgive, he can change, and he can use even the most sinful people. Regardless of how wicked your past is, God can still change you and use you greatly in the future. Well, let's see how Ananias responds to God's command to go. Verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as he came, has sent me 
that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So Ananias is obedient. He does what the Lord tells him to do, even though he had reservations about going to this man, Saul. He says, fine, Lord, I will be obedient and do what you say. He comes to him, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, he sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And right after he does that, immediately scales fall from the eyes of Saul. He's now able to see. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he is baptized. You know, something I think interesting to note Jesus dramatically reveals himself to Saul on the road to Damascus. This bright light is there. An audible voice speaks to him. That's very rare in Scripture. We don't have audible voices speaking to people very often. And so Jesus says this dramatic thing, and now he could dramatically just fill Saul with the Holy Spirit and do all these other things, but he chooses now to say, you know what, I'm going to use one of my followers. I'm going to use Ananias to continue this process of reaching out to this man because that's the way that God usually likes to work. He likes to involve us in the process. He wants to use us to reach people. He could do it all so much better himself or sending angels, but the reality is he wants to use us. He wants to involve us. He wants us to be a part of the process, and so he gets Ananias to go and be obedient and lay hands and pray for Saul. And he uses Ananias as part of this process of reaching Saul and empowering Saul with the Holy Spirit and ultimately baptizing him. So first we noted in Saul's conversion experience that Saul was persecuting Jesus. Second, we noted Saul was pursued by Jesus. Third, we know that Saul was surrendered to Jesus. And the fourth thing I want you to note here is that Saul is transformed to become like Jesus. God gives Saul back his eyesight. God fills Saul with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's baptized. This is the start of a great transformation in his life. Think about this. He's going to go from murderer to missionary. He's going to go from persecutor to pastor. I mean, there's this this huge, drastic transformation that's going to take place in Saul's life, and it's starting right here. A wonderful scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, when you accept Christ, you become a new creation. There's a new work that God does. The old life is gone. The new life is now there to serve God. And he starts this transformation process of making you more and more like Jesus. That is his desire. That's what he wants from each of us each and every day to change us, to help us grow, to become more like Jesus. That's the work that God was doing in Saul, and that's the work that he wants to do in us. He wants to change us, and then he wants to use us in great, powerful ways for his glory. You know, Saul says something very interesting about his conversion experience in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. It says this, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, For this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Notice how Saul saw himself in his time when he got saved. Jesus came to save me a sinner? No. He says, 
the chief of sinners. He recognizes, I was such a horrible sinner. I was murdering followers of Christ. He recognized how horrible of a sinner he was. But you know what? He also understood something very important, that Jesus came into the world to die for horrible sinners like him. He says something very encouraging in verse 16. For this reason... I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all luck suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Saul says, my salvation experience was a pattern for everyone else. What he's saying is ultimately, I'm an example of what Jesus can do, that he can take the most sinful, screwed up people and save them. That his death on the cross was enough to pay for any sin that you might do. And he's this pattern for others that say, man, I'm, I'm beyond salvation. I'm beyond redemption. I'm beyond God forgiving me. Look what I've done with my life. When you think that way, remember Saul. Remember what he did. And remember what God was able to do to save him and to transform him and change his life. Saul's conversion experience shows that God can save even the most sinful people. And no matter how sinful your past is, God can change you and still usually greatly in the future. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you pursue us, even when we're your enemy, even when we hate you, even when we're running from you, even in our sinful state, as we see here with this example in the life of Saul, a man who was murdering Christians, and yet you pursued him. You revealed yourself to him that you desired for him to get saved. As your word tells us, Lord, that you desire that all should be saved, that all should come to repentance, and that you pursue us because you love us. I know I am grateful that you pursued me, that you revealed yourself to me, that you showed me my sin, and, and that I recognized my need for you, the Savior who paid for my sin on the cross, and that as I accepted what you have done, you forgave me, You changed me as we see with Saul. You transformed his life. You've transformed mine. This room is full of people that you're transforming, God. But if you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus for forgiveness, you've never asked him to forgive you of your sin, I want to give you an opportunity this morning while people's eyes are closed, while their heads are bowed. If that's something you want to do, you want to accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers. He died on the cross for your sin. He wants to offer you forgiveness. He wants to save you. If that's something that you've never done, you see that Saul did that, you want to do that. You want to be changed. You want to be confident that when you die, you can go to heaven because of what Christ has done for you. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. So if that's you, you've never done that, you want to do that this morning. As people's eyes are closed, their heads are bowed, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you this morning. Anyone here, never done that, you want to do that today. Just raise your hand. The Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. So often we put off for another day something that we should be doing today. We don't know how many days we have left. It's in this life and this life alone that we can get right with God, that we can confess our sins, that we can ask him for forgiveness. If you've never done that, don't pass up this opportunity. Anyone here? Father, we are so grateful for your goodness. I'm grateful that, Lord, many here in this room, we know by experience, like Saul did, of your pursuing work, of your changing work. 
and we love you for it. We're so grateful for it, Lord. We love you because you first loved us, and you demonstrated it so powerfully by giving your life on the cross. And Lord, I just pray as you did in Saul's life, Lord, that it would not just be something that we are appreciative of, Lord, but it's something that you change us, that you work in us, that we're willing to go out and share with others that wonderful good news of the gospel, to reach others with the fact that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through you. Help us grow. Help us change. Help us to become more like you.